0: MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're gonna finish up the two-part series that we started last time on opiates. Today, we will cover the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of opioids. We'll also look at some of the various uses and some of the opioid agonist-antagonist compounds to finish up the two-part series. Before we get there, remember, please go to our website, acrac.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can sign up for our mailing list, and of course, leave comments on any of the episodes and download or listen to the episodes there. You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com. The Atlantic did an interesting piece uh, on opiates, giving kind of the history uh, of opiates, and you can find it at TheAtlantic.com. Just some interesting highlights. Opiates were first found in terms of human history in references back as far as 3400 B.C. when the opium poppy was grown in the lower Mesopotamia, it was referred to as the whole gill, which means the joy plant, and it would give euphoric effects that were used for pure enjoyment. And it was first used medically as early as 330 BC by the Arabs, Greeks, and Romans who used it as a sedative, and then uh, shortly thereafter, in about 220 to 264 AD, by a Chinese surgeon who had patients swallow it before undergoing major surgery. So actually, in some ways, it may have been the first anesthetic. In the 1800s, during the Civil War, morphine was used for pain during the war, and a huge number of soldiers became addicted. It was actually known as soldier's disease, the addiction to morphine after the war. And so heroin heroin was synthesized at the end of the 1800s in 1898, And sold by Bayer, as in the Bayer Aspirin Company, as a cough suppressant and as a non-addictive morphine substitute. Of course, that didn't work out so well, and heroin was banned in the Heroin Act in 1924. All right, that's the end of our history lesson for the day. Let's move on to talking about or finishing up our series on opiates. So as far as the pharmacokinetics of opiates... The speed of onset, and this is kind of one of those basic things we learned in medical school, is faster with increased lipid solubility. So morphine on one end has relatively low lipid solubility and is a much slower drug to onset. Only about 10 to 20% of morphine is unionized at physiologic pH, and so it doesn't diffuse into tissues very quickly. Morphine is conjugated in the liver and kidney, about 60% in the liver and 40% in the kidney. And almost all of morphine is conjugated to M3G. That's morphine 3-glucuronide. And then about 10% is converted to morphine 6-glucuronide in the liver. This is important because uh, morphine 6-glucuronide is more potent than morphine and accumulates in renal failure and can cause severe respiratory depression. Meparidine is uh, metabolized also in the liver to a main metabolite that is known as normeperidine. And importantly, normeperidine has CNS excitatory effects. So it can actually cause seizures, especially in renal failure where that metabolite can accumulate. Fentanyl, on the other hand, has no active metabolites. Interestingly, fentanyl has a large pulmonary first-pass metabolism About 75% of an IV dose of fentanyl is taken up in the lungs, and about 40% of the remainder is taken up by red blood cells. So interestingly, that's part of why fentanyl has such a rapid uh, offset in an initial dose, because it's taken up in these other areas uh, and gets out of the plasma. It is metabolized in the liver to norfentanyl, but again, that is not an active metabolite. Alfentanyl, which at least where I've worked, we hardly ever use, is mostly unionized, so very lipid soluble at physiologic pH, and so has a very fast onset. Sufentanil is similar to fentanyl, but more lipid soluble than fentanyl, so faster onset than fentanyl. And then remifentanil, of course, is a different structure completely. It has an ester structure and allows hydrolysis by blood and nonspecific tissue esterases into what are essentially non-active metabolites. And so remifentanil does not build up at all, uh, no matter how long an infusion has been going. And that's getting back to that context-sensitive halftime that we've discussed in prior episodes. But to quickly review, the context-sensitive halftime is dealing with Once an infusion of a medication has been stopped, how long does it take for the plasma concentration to decrease by half? And it's dependent on how much has built up. So with a medication like morphine, after several hours of an infusion, it will take a very long time for the plasma concentration to decrease by half because so much has built up. Whereas with remifentanil, nothing builds up because it's constantly being hydrolyzed by those esterases throughout the body. And so it doesn't build up at all. And when you turn off a remifentanil drip, even if it's after 10-12 hours, it will still, the amount in the blood will decrease by half at the same rate that it would have if you had turned off the drip after just one hour. Although we tend to be careful giving lots of opiates in renal failure, the actual pharmacology is such that fentanyl, alfentanil, sufentanyl and remifentanil don't build up to uh, have any significantly prolonged effect in renal failure because they are still metabolized by the liver into inactive metabolites. The effect of age on the pharmacokinetics of opiates is significant. Older patients have a much reduced uh, clearance, and so the dosage of opiates should be reduced by at least 50%, if not more, in older patients. Interestingly, neonates less than one year have have reduced elimination, and so uh, can have a more prolonged duration of action. But the dose required for children two to eleven years old can actually be double that of adults. So the most, uh, the highest dose is needed for those kids between two and eleven, and then adults need a reduced dose compared to kids, and then older adults in their seventies and eighties need a vastly reduced dose. And the dosing. For opiates, should be based on lean body mass, not total body weight. Some other things that can affect the pharmacokinetics of opioids we've already talked about renal failure. Hepatic failure really has a relatively minimal effect, except that it can reduce hepatic blood flow. The opiates can reduce hepatic blood flow and therefore lead to reduced elimination. Meparidine can build up and cause increased CNS depression. Now, that's the actual meparidine. If it's the metabolite of meparidine, but you need an active liver metabolizing it to do that, then meparidine can cause uh, CNS excitation. So the idea here is that complete hepatic failure, if you had, for example, if you were anhepatic during a liver transplant, then you would see increased duration of action from the opioids, but it doesn't take much liver function to be able to metabolize them. And so relatively mild hepatic failure or hepatic impairment does not have a major impact on the opioids. Cardiopulmonary bypass reduces the plasma concentration of opioids because of a change in the volume of distribution and binding of the drug to the circuit itself. And so you actually get decreased effect during bypass pH changes are significant as well. Acidosis causes decreased protein binding and therefore increased duration of action. So if your patient in the operating room is getting progressively acidotic, you may see a longer and more potent duration of action from fentanyl dosing. And hemorrhage, because of significant blood loss, leads to increased plasma levels of opiates and therefore doses can be reduced. As far as the various uses for opiates obviously the most common is for analgesia and the dosing for bolus dosing of uh, opiates for fentanyl a normal bolus dose is going to be somewhere in the one to three mics per kilo range for alfentanil 10 to 20 mics per kilo and for sufentanil 0.1 to 0.3 mics per kilo In terms of infusions, fentanyl infusions are going to usually be somewhere in the 0.01 to 0.05 mics per kilo per minute, alfentanil 0.25 to 0.75 mics per kilo per minute, sufentanil 0.0015 to 0.01 mics per kilo per minute, and remifentanil 0.05 to 0.25 mics per kilo per minute. This is, of course, just general guidelines your dosing may vary below or above these depending on your patient and what you're using them for. But in general, you can think of sufentanil as being about 10 times more potent than fentanyl. And so if you can remember your fentanyl dosing, you can divide by 10 to get your sufentanil dosing, and then you can multiply by 10 to get your alfentanyl dosing. That's not exact, but it's close, and so it's a good rule of thumb if you're trying to remember The other important thing to remember is that opiates have synergy with other medications. And so if you're using an opiate infusion, you can reduce the amount of inhaled agent or propofol that you need by up to 50% usually compared to what you would need if you were not also using a concomitant opiate. And so this takes us to some other applications for these medications. One is in combination with propofol, for example— or it could be done with a benzodiazepine for Ativa, a total intravenous anesthetic. Opiates can also be used in high dose as a near sole anesthetic for cardiac surgery. So large induction doses of fentanyl, for example, somewhere in the 25 to 75 mics per kilo range have been used for induction of cardiac surgery. And then an infusion of, for example, one mic per kilo per minute, which is a huge amount of fentanyl. But again, this would be uh, potentially used for cardiac surgery as a relatively hemodynamic, hemodynamically stable dose. Ramifentanil, all the way up to two mics per kilo as an as a bolus, and then an infusion up to one mic per kilo per minute. Of course, with ramifentanil, you will have that increased risk of opioid-induced rigidity. You can see it with the fentanyl too, but more common with ramifentanil. Now, these kind of dosing for cardiac surgery are being used less and less during cardiac surgery because of the push for a more fast track movement. Obviously, if you're giving gigantic doses of opioids during surgery, you're not going to be extubating early or in the operating room or early after arrival in the ICU. And so we're moving more away from doing this. Another application of opioids is transdermal use. The most common seen here is the fentanyl patch. So some interesting and important facts about this. From the time a fentanyl patch is applied, it takes up to 11 hours to have a peak effect, which is significant because you should not assume that if you put a fentanyl patch on your patient a few hours later, their pain should be controlled or you can turn off the fentanyl drip or whatever else they were on. It takes 18 hours from the time that the fentanyl patch is removed for the plasma concentration to decrease by half. And that's because there's a depot that builds up in the tissue. And even after the tissue is removed, fentanyl still leaches from that depot into the bloodstream. There is increased uptake from a fentanyl patch with increasing temperature, important to remember for patients who are febrile and then may develop increasing respiratory depression from their fentanyl patch. And as with IV fentanyl, you eliminate hepatic first-pass first metabolism with the use of a fentanyl patch. Fentanyl can also be given transmucosally. So there's a fentanyl lollipop, for example. Uh, the advantage here is that no depot builds up. So if you take away the fentanyl lollipop, the plasma concentration decreases very quickly. So it has a a more rapid off if you need to take it off. It has about 50% bioavailability because a lot of the lollipop is actually being swallowed and there is not a lot of oral bioavailability of fentanyl. So the combination of what is absorbed through the tissue and what is swallowed ends up giving about a 50% total bioavailability. And then there are now longer-acting formulations of morphine, for example, DepoDur, which is an extended-release epidural morphine. It's encapsulated in lipid particles, and it gives 24 up to 48 hours of analgesia when injected into the epidural space. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the epidural and intrathecal use of opiates, but I do want to point out a couple of things. It obviously can be used intrathecally and epidurally. When mixed with local anesthetic for a spinal block intrathecally, it can prolong the duration of the block. In terms of epidural use, fentanyl is often placed in epidural solutions, and it's important to realize that the data is fairly clear that an epidural fentanyl infusion, so whether it's just fentanyl or whether it's fentanyl added to local anesthetic, does not have any neuraxial effect. So any added analgesic effect you get from putting fentanyl in a epidural infusion is just from the effect of the fentanyl getting into the bloodstream because it has such solubility that it diffuses quickly into the bloodstream. And so an epidural infusion at 25 mics per hour is the same as an IV fentanyl infusion at 25 mics per hour. Interestingly, this is not true of a fentanyl bolus epidurally. And so with a PCEA, where patients can give themselves a bolus from time to time, you may actually get some added neuraxial effect from placing epidural fentanyl in there with the bupivacaine. And if you give a manual bolus of fentanyl into an epidural, you get neuraxial effect from that. Other opiates, like morphine or delauded have a much more pronounced epidural neuraxial effect because they don't diffuse into the bloodstream as quickly. They stay in the epidural space longer and have a more pronounced neuraxial effect. All right. Let me say a few words about some other opioid agonists that you may want to know about. Codeine has a half-life of about two to three hours. It's a very strong cough suppressant. It can cause hypotension with IV administration and so is not used that way. And has a wide variability in its transformation to morphine. So it is a prodrug that is transformed into morphine. But because based on genetics, some people don't transform any of it and don't get any effect, and some transform it rapidly and to a great extent and get a overdose effect. And so more, codeine is really being phased out of use in the hospital setting for this reason that it's not clear you can't know very well given any individual how they will react to codeine oxycodone is an incredibly commonly used opiate in the hospital setting and outpatient it's more potent than morphine and can cause more respiratory depression meparidine is used most commonly where I've worked at doses of 12.5 to 25 milligrams at a time to treat shivering, so postoperative shivering. But at larger doses, when used for pain control, normeperidine, as I mentioned before, can build up, especially in renal failure, and cause seizures. Hydromorphone, probably the most commonly used opiate in the hospital, aside from fentanyl maybe, is 5 to 10 times as potent as morphine takes 20 minutes to reach peak effect, and that's compared to 95 minutes for morphine to reach peak effect, and hydromorphone or Dilaudid lasts about 4 to 5 hours. Because it takes 20 minutes to reach peak effect, that's probably the most important thing to remember. If you give someone a dose of Dilaudid and 5 minutes later they're still in pain, giving another dose of Dilaudid can cause significant respiratory depression 10-15 minutes later when the first dose is now peaking and your second dose is starting to peak and you get more effect than you wanted. So you do have to tell patients to hang in there that you've given them some medication. It's going to take 10-15 minutes before they start to feel the effect. And if they can hang in there, then we'll see how that dose does. And you may need to give another dose, but you want to wait before you do that. Methadone has equivalent potency to morphine but a longer duration of action, an incredibly variable duration of action with a half-life anywhere from 13 to 100 hours. And this is why we have to be very careful with dosing of methadone. It's also Methadone also has NMDA receptor antagonism like ketamine, and that gives it some important effects in terms of preventing the development of chronic pain and reducing the tolerance effect that can develop from other opioids. Oxymorphone is 10 times more potent than morphine. It has extensive, extensive liver metabolism, and so not recommended in liver impairment. And then tramadol, which we see often, also acts as a serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor in addition to its opiate effects. It's about one-fifth to one-tenth as potent as morphine. It can cause seizures, and interestingly. It has some antibacterial action, at least in the lab. In terms of opiate agonist antagonist compounds, there are four main ones we'll talk about, buprenorphine, butorphanol, nalbufine, and pentazosine. They cause less euphoria and therefore less drug-seeking behavior than classic opiates, but they still can cause some respiratory depression. Interestingly, the respiratory depression with these has a ceiling effect, whereas straight opiates like Morphine and fentanyl do not. They can go all the way to causing apnea where the agonist antagonists usually will not cause apnea. They will depress respiratory rate, but not all the way to apnea. They hit that ceiling effect. And naloxone, Narcan, will still reverse these medications except it doesn't work as well for buprenorphine because of how tightly buprenorphine binds to the opiate mu receptor. Pentazocine, we'll start with, is mainly a kappa agonist. It causes some post-op nausea and vomiting, dysphoria, cardiac depression, and tachycardia, as well as an increase in PA pressures, and so is not frequently used. Butorphanol is a kappa agonist and a mu partial agonist, and is only given parenterally, and can cause nausea and CNS stimulation at the extreme, potentially seizures buprenorphine probably the most commonly used of these is a mu partial agonist it's 33 times more potent than morphine it has a very high affinity for the receptors as i said before with a half life of 166 minutes compared to 6.8 minutes for fentanyl its peak effect comes at three hours and has a 10 hour duration of action it does have active metabolites and produces similar euphoria to morphine can, and therefore can be used as a pre-medication, though I haven't seen it used that way. And again, though it is more potent than morphine, has because it's a partial agonist, has that ceiling effect in terms of the euphoria and respiratory depression that it can cause. If a patient has been given buprenorphine, it will not allow other opiates to be used to their full effect because they will not be able to knock buprenorphine off the receptors. And so the maximum analgesia, the maximum euphoria, and the maximum respiratory depression will still be set by buprenorphine, not by the fentanyl or delauded that you might give. And because of its long half-life, if a patient is on buprenorphine, they may need to be off it for quite a while before they can have the full effect of analgesia, for example, during a surgery from other opiates such as fentanyl. Now, bupine is a mu antagonist and a kappa agonist. It's only parenterally uh, given. And it has relatively limited analgesic effect. It does cause respiratory depression and sedation, and so not uh, all that useful. There are also, of course, total antagonists at the opioid receptors. The most common is naloxone. It is a mu, kappa, and delta antagonist. It is used most commonly to reverse the respiratory depression Uh, of opiates, but it can also reduce the other effects such as the nausea, puritis, urinary retention, biliary spasm, and constipation caused by opiates. Narcan, naloxone, also known as Narcan, comes in a vial that is 0.4 milligrams, so that's 400 micrograms, and that full dose will completely reverse whatever opiate action is on board in the patient at that time. And you have to be careful because someone who... Obviously, someone who's not breathing or coding, you just give the whole thing. But someone who is still breathing, still has adequate saturation, still has good vital signs, but is overly depressed and you need to bring them a little bit out of it, you give the whole thing and you will completely reverse. If they're post-surgical, for example, if they're post-op, you will completely reverse whatever pain control they have, and that's not what you want. And so the way to use it in that setting is to dilute it To 40 mics per cc. So take the vial, which is 1 cc, dilute it into 10 cc syringe, and you'll now have a syringe that is 40 mics per cc. And you can give 1 to 2 cc's at a time, and that can help bring someone back from overly affected by respiratory depression without taking away all the analgesia. If you do give the full dose, be careful, you can cause pulmonary edema, hypertension, and tachycardia by giving. A complete reversal, essentially throwing someone into withdrawal. The onset of Narcan is very fast, about one minute, and has a duration of action about 30 minutes, maybe up to 60 minutes. That is important because it is often less of a duration of action than some longer-acting opiates you may be reversing, and you can get a return of respiratory depression when the Narcan wears off. And often people who have had longer-acting opiates or large, large doses of, for example, heroin, need to be on a Narcan drip. Narcan can be given through the ET tube if you do not have IV access. And the last interesting fact about Narcan is that there is some evidence that Narcan can reduce the risk of paraplegia in AAA repair. So you may find that the vascular surgeons will ask postoperatively for their AAA patients to be on a Narcan infusion. And this is why, because of that evidence suggesting it may help reduce the risk of paraplegia, even though the mechanism is not well understood. Naltrexone is an oral mu, kappa, and delta antagonist with the same potential of the same effects of Narcan, but it is longer acting than Narcan with a half-life of 8 to 12 hours. And so if someone can take an oral antagonist, it will not have that same problem of having a return of the respiratory depression. A couple of other antagonists to mention, now methine is actually more active at the mu receptor in terms of being able to block than it is at the kappa and delta. And it can be either oral or IV, though I haven't seen this in practice. And then methyl naltrexone, which is not It's significant in that it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. And so this is really interesting because it can reverse the peripheral effects of opiates, such as ileus, delayed gastric emptying, and puritis, without affecting the analgesia, which comes from the central effect of the opiates. So right now, this is new and very expensive, but you could imagine in the future where there might be a way to give opiates and methyl naltrexone and get the analgesic effects without the peripheral side effects, and that could be very useful. Lastly, let's mention some opiate interactions with other medications. So, as I said before, opiates are synergistic with propofol and benzodiazepines in terms of their ability to cause analgesia, amnesia, and also to cause respiratory depression. Ketamine reduces the amount of opiate consumption postoperatively, probably through the NMDA receptor antagonism, and so can be a useful adjunct. Some places are now putting ketamine in PCAs along with opiates to try to reduce the amount of opiate that's needed postoperatively. Mepiridine, tramadol, and methadone can cause serotonin, syndrome in patients who are on MAO inhibitors. So important to keep that in mind because those three, meperidine, tramadol, and methadone, have some serotonin reuptake inhibition. Magnesium potentiates opiate action, causes an increased duration of action, and can prevent the hyperalgesia that can be seen with remifentanil. And so interestingly, if you are going to run a remifentanil infusion, especially if it's going to be high-dose remifentanil infusion, You could think about running a magnesium infusion, something like one to two grams an hour during the case and can prevent the development of that hyperalgesia that can be seen with high-dose remifentanil. NSAIDs, gabapentin, and other things like Tylenol can reduce opiate use and prevent hyperalgesia as well. Tricyclic antidepressants can increase opiate-induced respiratory depression, so be careful. People aren't on them as much anymore, but sometimes they are, and you need to be careful of that. And then diphenhydramine or Benadryl actually can counter some of the respiratory depressant effects of opioids, which is an interesting thing to think about. Uh, Obviously, can cause sedation, but counters some of the respiratory depressant effects of opioids so giving benadryl for example with morphine to reduce the itching or to treat itching can actually help prevent some of that respiratory depression all right that's it for today remember to go to the website acrac.com leave comments let me know what you're thinking about these episodes what you'd like to see the same or different if there are any topics you'd particularly like to see covered you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C at accra Until next time, for the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.